This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, a eulogy, a parting thought about a dying loved one. And this story comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. And the name of the piece, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems. But once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash. Mountains in whatever direction I looked. And awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed? still moves me these decades later. He told
told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form. On my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, Yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American Stories. Pilot and world champion runner Orville Rogers trained bomber pilots in World War II, flew the B-36 on secret missions during the Cold War, ferried airplanes to remote Baptist missions all over the world, and squeezed in a 31-year career as a pilot with Braniff Airways. Orville also took up running at age 51 and ran his first marathon six years later. At 100, he continues to compete and now holds 15 world records to date. Orville was married for 64 years. Beth, his bride, passed in 2008. He has two sons and a daughter, as well as nine grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. He now lives in Dallas, Texas. And his story, by the way, is so connected at 100, still running, to the life of Ken Cooper, the doctor in Dallas, Texas, who we featured about living longer and living better. And by the way, driving down healthcare costs, doing it all at the same time. And as always, our, our better living at lower cost segments and series are brought to us by the great people at the Stetson family office. But now, let's hear the story, the life story of Orville Rogers. 1927, Lindbergh flew the first solo flight nonstop from New York, landed in Paris. He made a tour of the central United States and deliberately he circled every schoolhouse he could find and he circled our schoolhouse. My first airplane ride, that was a fun experience. I think I was about 10 or 11 years old in Sulphur, Oklahoma. I was in the yard one day and a plane flew over very low and it looked like he was going to be landing. So I jumped on my bike and rode out, and sure enough, he landed. So I went over and talked to him. He said, yeah, I'm giving rides $4. So I, I had to go back home and break my piggy bank and get the $4 out to come back and get my first airplane ride. I didn't tell my parents about it until much later. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience, and it cemented my idea of becoming a pilot. My father deserted my mother and my sister and me when I was six years old. And my mother took us back to her parents. So we grew up in the home of my grandparents. And uh, he was a farm man. They were not very loving in a obvious way. I knew my grandfather loved me, but he never told me so. But it worked out okay because uh, I eventually came to terms with the realization that that was just their way of life. As a senior at Oklahoma University, I received the impression, I thought it was from God, that I ought to be in vocational Christian service in order to really serve God the best. Uh, that was the wrong impression, but in order to prepare for whatever God had for me, I knew I had to go to the seminary. So I came to the seminary in September of 1940, and uh, I think it was five weeks later, they held the first drawing for the draft for World War II service. There was a giant fishbowl in Washington, I think it was about five feet in diameter, that held slips of paper with numbers on them from one to a thousand. 
Well, so help me. My number was thrown out number seven. And uh, so I heard from the draft board almost immediately. So I went down and talked to them and I said, uh, hey, I don't want to be in the walking army. Can I enlist in the Army Air Corps? They said, sure. So I enlisted in the Army Air Corps and was accepted and had my pre-induction physical. And they didn't call me up right away, but uh, that was God's way of turning me around from my impression that I ought to be in vocational Christian service and told me that I could serve God as well or a whole lot better as a layman. I enlisted in the Army Air Corps November the 1st, 1941, five weeks before Pearl Harbor. And we heard about it one Sunday afternoon. We got the word when they turned the radio on that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. I was in training in San Diego flying a primary trainer. After graduating from flying school, the uh, second lieutenant pilots would be assigned to different bases. My instructor in the advanced training school recommended that I become an instructor. So all of my World War II flying career, I was in the training command instructing other students how to fly an airplane. We lost a large number of pilots, student pilots and instructor pilots to training accidents during the war. They were in such a rush to get the pilots to the front uh, because we needed them badly there. And so the program was accelerated to the point that it really was uh, quite dangerous. And I flew B-25s for over two years uh, instructing in the advanced phase of the flying training program. And I loved that airplane. It, it was a bomber uh, and a very effective one. At the end of the war, I was assigned to training in the B-17. I reported to my training base for B-17 training about three days after they dropped the first atomic bomb. So the, uh, then they dropped the second one and the war was over. I went ahead and finished my training in the B-17 but never got to use it. And I was separated from the Air Corps shortly after that. In uh, April, of 1951, I was recalled to the Air Force, as they called it then, and I was assigned to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth flying the B-36, our primary defense weapon against an attack by Russia. We were on call 24 hours a day. If war had been declared, we would have loaded our atom bomb in Fort Worth, Texas, flown to Goose Bay, Labrador, refuel there, and then take off from there to bomb our assigned target in Russia. The B-36 at that time was the largest airplane in the world. It was longer than a B-29 and a B-17 nose to tail. That's a lot of airplane. We had a crew of 15 people, and I loved flying that airplane. I had always wanted to fly the big airplanes. We would have had no problem with dropping a bomb, although we knew what destruction it could cause. But I think everybody in my squadron, certainly on my crew, had accepted the fact that we signed up to defend our country. And while that possibly meant the destruction and the loss of life of many people, we were prepared mentally and psychologically 
in every way to accomplish that. 52 years later, in 2004, my wife and I were on a Russian cruise ship. We sailed from St. Petersburg to Moscow through the river and canal systems, and we docked on the northwest side of Moscow after stopping twice in cities en route to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of the Russian people. We had five doctors on board the ship and ten nurses, and many of the people would be street witnessing, uh, giving away English Bibles, Russian Bibles, children's Bibles, and literature. Tour. The day after we docked in Moscow, we had a clinic there in a schoolhouse on a site that was probably less than five miles from where my target was in 1952 if war had broken out. I'm glad we didn't have to drop the bomb to begin with. And I'm equally glad that I was able to be a part of a Christian group going to the very same area where my target was 52 years before, taking them the Christian witness and telling them about our Lord Jesus. Uh, it was just a wonderful feeling to, uh, to accomplish that because instead of dropping death and destruction from above, we were carrying in the word of life on the horizontal plane Word of life, eternal life, abundant life, available in our Lord Jesus. I met my wife at Oklahoma University. I had attended uh, my freshman year in another school, and I enrolled at Oklahoma University, so I was a sophomore and met her when she was a freshman. She was dating another boy when I first met her, my first year there, and they were pretty steady. It took a year or two, but uh, it, finally we became engaged. But one night I woke up in a deep, depressive, frame of mind because I had dreamed that she was marrying him and I was attending their wedding. And that had a profound effect on me for a few days, a week or two, because I just couldn't stand the thought of losing her. But he wouldn't lose his bride, Beth. And when we continue here on Our American Stories, the story of Orville Rogers continues. More after these messages. And we continue here with our American stories. And after flying the B-36 on secret missions during the Cold War, Orville Rogers became a commercial airline pilot and a missionary pilot for Wycliffe Bible Translators, also the jungle aviation and radio services known as JARS. In this segment, you'll also be hearing from Orville's doctor, Kenneth Cooper, founder and chairman of the Cooper Institute. We had mentioned that earlier in the opening of this story. Dr. Cooper is known as the father of aerobics and is a former Air Force colonel from Oklahoma. You can hear that story on ouramericannetwork.org. It's a terrific one all by itself. By the way, Dr. Cooper is also my doctor. Let's continue with Orville Rogers' story. I always enjoyed knowing that I was delivering people to their destinations 
safely and comfortably. Well, I flew for Braniff for a little over 30 years, and I loved it. I would have flown for nothing, but, but I was glad they paid me for it. <laughs> Braniff Airlines started up with a route structure that only included two cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa. It was a single-engine airplane, but they soon graduated to the DC-3, and they were flying from Dallas to Chicago and gradually expanding I uh, started out on the DC-3, and I flew the Convair 340 and 440, and it was taken over by the DC-6 series, and then we had a DC-7, and then eventually got up to the DC-8, and uh, then to the Boeing 727 for most of my flying but I enjoyed flying the DC-8 to South America. It was a beautiful airplane. It was a long-range airplane. We flew it nonstop from New York to Buenos Aires. Uh, it was a 10-hour and 20-minute flight, and I think it was the longest nonstop flight in the airline business at the time we were flying it in 1976 and 1977. I really enjoyed that flight, but I enjoyed all of South America. I met the founder of Wycliffe, William Cameron Townsend, in our church in 1965, and I volunteered to help out with Bible translation and particularly the aviation part of it. And I realized that while I had about maybe a dozen Bibles in my house, there were people groups of the world that didn't have to have one word of God's Word in their own native language. Just felt like I could be of service in God's kingdom by helping deliver airplanes to the translators around the world who were there aiding the cause of Bible translation by the safe, efficient transportation where the roads were difficult or impossible. Well, I delivered 46 missionary airplanes in my career. Uh, they were challenging because you don't go down to the filling station and buy a, a road map. You have to be prepared for the over-ocean flying, which means the airplane must be equipped with additional radio equipment. It must have additional fuel for the long flights, either Europe or Africa or Southeast Asia, wherever you may be going. Because you look on a globe or a map at the Pacific Ocean and you see islands scattered all around everywhere. But when you get out there and fly it, you can fly for hours and hours and never see an island. So if the radio station on that island went out, or if you had difficulty with your receiver, uh, you'd be on your own looking for throughout that vast expanse of water to find that tiny little dot of an island down there. So this is a grave concern to uh, be able to navigate successfully. I took my first ferry flight for George in 1965. About a year or two later, they put me on their board, and I was on their board for 39 years. That's remarkable. I can't believe it. And three or four years later, the board chairman retired, and they made me chairman of the board. So I was chairman of the board for 13 of those 39 years, and it was a delight to serve God that way. 
And uh, let me tell you about the climax of every missionary fly, ferry flight. When you taxi into the ramp, open the door and hand the keys to the airplane to the missionary pilot already there who's going to be flying that airplane in the work of Bible translation. I read a book by Dr. Kenneth Cooper when I was in Chicago on a layover from our Braniff Airways flight, and I literally read it through in almost one sitting, and it was a highly motivational book. I started running the next day, and I've run a little over 42,500 miles in the last 50 years. Your feet are in remarkably good condition for a person who has run for as long as you have. A person looks good for a man of, of any age. Get real deep, so he has a two and a half inch expansion, which is very good. Don't let me push it out. Hold it real tight, real tight, real tight. And that's like iron. You have very good quadricep muscle strength. Yeah, we're almost at 100 years of age. You're like a man about 60. So you, you have, you you have you. slowed down the aging process, as you yeah. know. There's very few people past 100 years of age who can begin to keep up with you, even be alive, as you know. Yeah, my objective is to slow down as slowly as possible. Slow down as slowly as possible. And you've proven to what I've said for years. It's fascinating, though, that one can grow healthier as one grows older, and not necessarily the reverse. Who determines that? You do. Here you're 100 years of age, yeah. I'm 87 years of age, still practicing medicine every day. So we're enjoying life the fullest, and our goal for you and for me both is live that long, healthy life the fullest, and then die suddenly. We call that squaring off the curve, yeah. and you've already passed that. But you know, as we tell people coming to our clinic, we call them getting Cooperized, find all the recommendations we give to our patients, over 145,000 patients now. If you follow recommendations for diet, and weight, and exercise, all the various things that we, that we recommend, that you should live 10 years longer than the national average. Wow. That would mean you should live 87 years. I'm already 87 trying to prove that, and you're way beyond that. I started running early on with a group called the Cross Country Club of Dallas, and it was competitive but in a friendly way. And I gradually outgrew the group, outaged them, and I looked around and the world records seemed to be attainable. So uh, a little over 10 years ago now, when I was approaching 90, I looked up the world records for the one mile and the 800 meters, and I thought, maybe I can do that. So I engaged a trainer, and he coached me on starting and breathing and pacing, and I went to Boston 10 years ago. I ran the 800 meters in world record time. I think I broke the record by about the 30 seconds. But I really slaughtered the mile. I think the record was 11 minutes and some seconds. And uh, I attacked it vigorously and finished with a time under 10 minutes. I think it was 9.57 something or other. And I'm still the only man in the world that had run a 10 minute mile after the age of 90. I like that. In March this year, I attended the National Indoor Championship meet near Washington, D.C. It was a track and field meet. I entered five running events, ranging from 60 meters up to 1,500 meters. And uh, I had no competition, so I got gold records just by showing up and suiting up, starting and finishing. 
But the uh, icing on the cake was that I was able to set five new world records, one for each of the five events that I entered. So I now hold or have set 18 world records. I think two or three of them have been broken. But I have set 18 world records officially. And what a story this is, Orville Rogers' story. And we'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their wonderful documentary, Flying High for the Glory of God, The Orville Rogers Story. Check out their full documentary and the 1,900 more titles of uplifting family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. That's visionvideo.com. When we continue more of the life of Orville Rogers, Orville Rogers' story continues here on Our American Story. And we return to the story of Orville Rogers and his doctor, Kenneth Cooper, founder and chairman of the Cooper Institute, located in Orville's hometown of Dallas, Texas. But both of these guys, well, they come and hail from Oklahoma. We will also be hearing from Orville's daughter, Susan, his sons, Rick and Bill, and his great-grandson. Let's begin with Dr. Ken Cooper. Well, first of all, it's not that amazing anymore. People live past 100 years. They're becoming uh, quite, that's quite readily known. But people past 100 years of age who are still competing athletically in running events, that is extremely unusual, one out of a million, I would say. So Orville has, he's had his problems. He was a marathon runner in Auburn. I first met him at age 54, that's 46 years ago, on his first examination here at the clinic in 1971. I followed him every year after that, too. But what has happened is he's had some medical problems back in 1993. All of a sudden, we discovered he had severe coronary disease without any chest pain whatsoever when he had a six-vessel coronary bypass procedure. That was 1993. Then in 2011, he had a major stroke that occurred in 2011. But he's only incapacitated for 30 days. He's out back running again. One aspect of my running is that it gives me a platform to speak a word for my Lord Jesus. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old, and I've tried to follow my Lord for 90 years now. I've run in races where people alongside me or near me would falter just a little bit as they approached the finish line, uh, two or three or four or five yards. It seemed like they were saying to themselves, there's the finish line, I've made it, and they kind of relax and slow down a little bit. That's not my style. I want to power through running uh, to the very end of the tape, and it served me well. A year ago in Albuquerque, I was running against a 94-year-old man, and he got up, there's just the two of us, in a 60-meter race, and he got off to a fast start. I don't have fast twitch muscles, which enables a, a fast start in running, and so he was three or four yards ahead of me almost immediately. But I kept plugging away and uh, maintaining the pace that I thought would be applicable to that distance. And he must have slowed down because I certainly wasn't speeding up, but I began gaining on him at the halfway mark and at the finish line, I leaned forward just enough to beat him by five hundredths of one second. <laughs> 
there's a magazine that came out with a statement that we had met five times after that race, and I, I beat him every time. And uh, I don't want to slow down at the finish line. I don't want to be disqualified by not serving my Lord well all through every day of my life. I want to finish strong for my Lord, don't you? I hope you enjoy life as much as I do. I love life. My son was a Marine helicopter pilot and was on a rescue mission in Vietnam in 1970 and was killed when they, they ran into very adverse weather conditions in the extraction process. Well, God can use any experience of life to the benefit. And one of the good things that came out of this was the realization that uh, Curtis lived a wonderful life and he died in service for our country. And uh, if, if it had to happen, that was the best way it could. My advice to anyone in a similar situation would be that God is still in control. He knows what is happening and he is in control, in control and he can be relied upon to supply you comfort and uh, help anytime it's needed. My wife and I served for 13 months in Tanzania. I had a beautiful uh, Cessna 210 flying over Tanzania, which is as big as Texas and part of New Mexico. The interesting part about that trip was when we left Honolulu, I had not explained to my wife that radio waves are straight line, just like sunlight. And once you fly about 100 miles or so, depending on your altitude, away from your home departure station, you lose radio contact. Uh, so I was halfway to Johnston Island or so and trying to work anybody that would talk to me, and nobody would talk to me. I wanted to make a position report. And I sensed that maybe she was getting a little bit nervous about the situation because I was using a loudspeaker and she could hear the conversation. So I took off my headset and laid it down and put my bike down. I reached over and gave her a big hug and I said, Honey, when you married me, did you ever think you'd be having this much fun? <laughs> she didn't hit me. Uh, I'm free to express my life story in that manner. If my viewers understand that I'm doing it as a Christian witness, I want no glory for it. I want no commendation for it. But uh, I found out early in life that it would be wise to save enough money as possible and invest it so that in the future I could be a vehicle for helping God's work, bringing his kingdom to earth from heaven as he asked us to do. And so I got interested in investing. I invested in the stock market, in land and uh, oil and gas. And God blessed in that. Uh, if people ask me, how did I do that? I say, I did not do it. God did it. And it was our privilege, and I, since my wife's death, to give away over $35 million to God's work. I, I knew that Dad flew a lot, but it never felt like he missed important things like piano recitals or football games or anything and he's getting us back for that now by going to, <laughs> we're going to his track meets and interviews and banquets and birthdays so 
Every day is a gift, and I think he is the one that really epitomizes that. I mean, he knows it every day, every, day, every year, and it just it, it gives us a, a great sense of uh, purpose and uh, looking toward the future, and I think that's the way he's made it from 90 to 100 for sure. I remember when he first realized he couldn't run a sub-10-minute mile anymore, and my friends in their 60s all say, I can't run a sub-10-minute mile, and they're in their 60s. They can't remember when they could run a sub-10-minute mile, so it's pretty fun. We try to keep him humble. I mean, I tell him all the time that I could do what he does and be in the newspaper the next day, too. But the only problem is I'd be in the obituary section, and he's in the sports section. One of my big memories of my dad and my mom was looking in their bedroom and seeing him on their knees praying. It was regular, and... Not for show. They were prayerful people and made it just a core to their life. And they're always reading the Bible. And they prayed through the missionary prayer list, which I don't know if it bothered them. It made me kind of crazy sometimes. But they prayed for every Southern Baptist missionary on their birthday throughout the whole year. It's pretty amazing discipline. I'm in track right now. And I just think that I, it's great having a grandpa that is 100 running track. So. <laughs> when I run, I just think about them a lot, so I just think that's great. My dad and my mom wanted to be with us on vacations. There's a lot of people that talk to them and say, what? You know, that's not a vacation if your kids and grandkids are there. But he started it over 30 years ago, and we go on fabulous trips every summer, and it's a job now coordinating that many people. So it's over 30 people for over 30 years uh, going together someplace crazy anywhere from the North Pole to Antarctica to Europe or Africa, but they've been an amazing way for this family to bond. I enjoy reading and uh, studying Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, because Paul speaks there of running as being a metaphor for living. And uh, I think I can quote it. Uh, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us cast aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and henceforth is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what a story we just heard. What a life well lived in his hundreds and still running. And running being a metaphor for life. We'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their wonderful documentary, Flying High for the Glory of God, The Orville Rogers Story. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 more titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. His faith, a fundamental part of his life. The kid's vision of the parents sitting in that room, kneeling down and praying for other people. And we tell their stories here on this show, just as we tell everyone's stories. Faith, no faith, no difference to us. Beautiful stories are beautiful stories. That he gave away $35 million that he'd made investing because he didn't think it was his. My goodness, what a story to tell by itself. And what a heart, what a generous heart. And by the way, that he lived so long, you know, we do a lot of these stories about living longer and cutting down costs and living better. Uh, these are stories that the Cooper Clinic has turned us on to, Ken Cooper's life work, and the work with Chuck Stetson and his family office. 
better living at lower costs. And my goodness, this story is a metaphor for all of those things, teaching us all how to live in the end. Orville Rogers' story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over our great country. We've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. Some people focus on the fact that this village has beautiful RVs, and gorgeous small homes designed by the finest architects in the nation. But that's not this place's secret sauce. No, it's the people who live and work at Community First that make it transformative. To get a sense of that, we'd like you to hear a story from Larry Crawford, the fellow who fixes anything and everything that breaks in this community, from air conditioners to trucks. Here's Larry. I bought myself a new truck, and I've always been a kind of the base model truck buy-in kind of guy. And But I'm a little older now, and I have a little more money, so my wife went shopping with me, and she's like, oh, I love this leather. So what I ended up purchasing was the Longhorn Laramie diesel, has all these bells and whistles on It's got things on the dashboard I still don't know how to work. Uh, it's four-wheel drive. It's got fancy wheels and running boards, and it's just a really a luxury pickup truck. And because we're in Texas, it's just like a... I don't think it's a written law, but it's kind of like a law that when you get a new truck, you got to go show your buddies. You know, you got to go show the guys you work with your new truck. So I'd had the truck about a week. And uh, so I decided to drive it to work and show it to my buddies. And at the end of the day, my wife called me and she, she asked me, she's like, hey, can you go to the grocery store and pick up this one item? And that's several years ago. I don't remember what it was. And so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I, I leave work and. I'm heading down Loyola because there's a HEB grocery store at uh, Springdale and 183. So I was heading that way and I saw this homeless guy that I, that I had known for several years walking down the street. And so I just stopped in the middle of the road, rolled the window down. I was like, hey, Mike, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to HEB. And I'm like, jump in. So we go to HEB and, and I'm like, I just need one thing. I said, I'm going to go and get what I need and then I'll just wait for you at the truck and I'll take you because he lives in a camp uh, not too far from here and uh, I'll take you back to your camp and uh, so I, I get my one item and I'm sitting out waiting for him to show up and he comes out of the store with two boxes of beer and and um, he's, a, he's a profound alcoholic and uh, I mean without exaggeration I've seen him falling down drunk at 7 a.m. Uh, 
He's a lovely human being. He just has lost control of his drinking. Anyhow, so I drop him off at his camp. I go home, fix dinner, and the day just ends. I go to bed. You know. And about three weeks later, we do this thing here at the village. We call it Reach Out. And basically, get a bunch of chartered school buses, and we go get the homeless people from the camps in downtown. We bring them out here to the village. We let them take showers, get haircuts, get a real good hot meal, not fast food, but good hot meal. Um, you know, there's somebody here that's like nurses and doctors and check their blood sugars and their diabetes and their blood pressure and do all of these things. And um, so anyway, I'm standing over by the corner of the shop and, and I see Mike get off the bus and he's screaming at me. And, uh, and it's not uncommon for homeless people to scream at me because they all want the same thing from me. Uh, I'm a smoker. They want to, hey, you got a cigar? Do you have a cigarette? Do you have, you know? And so I knew that's what Mike wanted. So I'm just sitting there kind of silently and I said, okay, hurry up, Mike, so you can get a smoke from me and I can go on with my business. And he's, as he's approaching me, he's maybe 10 or 12 feet away and I could already smell him because he hadn't had a bath in a long time. And he drops down to his knees in front of me and he takes this old ratty backpack off and he's like, man, I got you something. And I'm like, what do you mean you got me something? He said, man, I bought you a present. I'm like, man, you have to get me nothing. And he's like, no, no. He said, I see how you treat people on the streets. He said, and I wanted to give you a gift. And he said, I noticed in your old truck, the truck I drive to work that's sitting out there by the shop right now every day, it's a, an 05 Dodge diesel. I have the black velour interior, which in 2005 was pretty nice. And um, anyhow, he said, I noticed in your old truck that you had a Bible that had the same color cover as the interior of your truck. And I'd, at that point, I'd been driving that truck for like 12 years and I didn't realize that the cover on my Bible and my black upholstery were the same color. It never occurred to me. Anyhow, so he had ridden in my new truck and he said, I got you a Bible that has the same color leather as the leather on the seats in your new truck. And he said, I went to the Bible store. He said, I didn't even realize there was more than one kind of Bible. He said, I told the lady, just sell me the most popular one that had this color leather. He said, the receipt's in the box. He said, and the lady said, you can bring it back and get whatever kind of Bible you read if this is not what you want. And I can tell you right now, it wouldn't matter which Bible. It could have been any, it could have been a Bible in a foreign language. I wouldn't have traded it back in. And at that point, moment man my eyes started leaking i wasn't like crying or nothing but i was just like i just like couldn't believe that this guy which is like the poorest of all the poor people that you ever met had bought me a bible to match the interior of my truck and and the thought kept going through my head it's like man I, this guy could take this back get his money back this i'm driving an expensive truck i live in a nice house i could go buy a box of bibles and wouldn't even miss the money but I, and I just get something kept telling us like, no, you need to take this gift from this man. And, and I did. And I still have that Bible still in my truck. And um, uh, it was a lesson for me in the unbelievable generosity of human beings that man probably panhandled for weeks to be able to get enough money for his daily survival and then be able to accumulate the $77 he paid for that Bible. Uh, 
not realizing that he probably could have just went to the local church and asked for one. They probably would have gave him one for free. He didn't get that. But, but anyhow, so the struggle that man went through to get that, uh, it's one of my most valued possessions. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Great job on that, Stan. And what a message of generosity that can come from anywhere. And we do these stories about the homeless, about prison inmates, right next to entrepreneur stories, stories about billionaires, because in the end, these are all great American stories and show our heart and our soul. Larry Crawford's Bible story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and we love hearing from you and your stories send them to ouramericanstories.com they're some of our favorites and every year millions of Americans take to the road in search of adventure or to just get from point A to point B but for Robert Froelich a listener from Wisconsin his trip from his home state to Kentucky while volunteering for the Appalachian Service Project was a bit more complicated than that Here's Robert with the story of his bad road trip. It was about 9.30 at night when my wife looked out the window as I backed into the driveway. She was shaking her head when I walked in the front door. I told her, you go to bed. I need to sit and pray for a while. Without a word, she went off to bed. My friend Jack and I had many adventures together, mostly because the word impossible was not in his vocabulary. We served in the Appalachia Service Project, work missions for a few years, and helped them out in other ways from time to time. This time, the project needed new trucks to haul materials from their central warehouses to the various work centers throughout the Appalachian region. Jack and I and a couple of representatives from the project went to a truck auction in Chicago to buy four used trucks that would suit the need and fit their very limited budget. We found just what we were looking for in four used U-Haul trucks. Two of them were driven immediately to Johnson City, Tennessee, while we took the remaining two back to Racine, Wisconsin. The plan was to remove the cargo boxes and then drive the two bare frame trucks back south where they would be fitted with flatbeds for hauling lumber and building supplies. Jack had it all figured out. His driver would drive one truck, Jack would drive the other, and I would follow in a chase car to bring us all back home again, about an 1100 mile round trip. That was the plan. God chuckled. First, Jack's driver quit. On to plan B. It consisted of Jack and me each driving a truck with one of us towing a car for the return trip. God giggled. Then, Jack had a work obligation that could not wait. That left me. 
We had gone from a three-man task to two guys to one Lone Ranger. Three, two, one, you're it. LA laughs were heard in heaven. We conjured up plan C. It called for me to drive both trucks to Corbin, Kentucky and leave them at the truck stop. People from Appalachia Service Project would come out the next day and take the trucks from there. Then, from the bus station in Corbin, I could catch a ride back to Racine. Jack obtained a saddle from somewhere. It's a thing that allows you to piggyback one truck onto another. The guy who owned the saddle told Jack, if anything goes wrong, you didn't get that thing from me. One afternoon, Jack and I removed the truck boxes, installed the saddle, hoisted one truck atop the other with a forklift, and cobbled together some wiring for brake lights on a towed vehicle. I remember Jack drove the rig in circles over rough ground to test the integrity of the saddle. So it was that I came home that night driving a rig that looked perilously unstable and told my wife I would be leaving at 4 a.m. the next morning. Then I prayed, Lord, these are your trucks, intended to serve poor people in Appalachia. Please help me get them there safely, in Jesus' name, amen. Leaving at 4 a.m. would get me through Chicago before the morning rush to arrive in Corbin while it was still daylight and to get there before the next bus departed at about 7 p.m. I threw a change of clothes and a big crescent wrench into a small bag and headed out the door. These Ford trucks were about 20 years old and they were made for city driving. Equipped with a V8 engine and a four-speed manual transmission, the trucks were stripped down basic vehicles, noisy and underpowered. Pulling out of my driveway, I headed west of the interstate, then took I-94 south toward Chicago. There were five or six toll stations going around Chicago. After paying the first toll, I pulled off to the side of the road, grabbed the big crescent wrench and gave each and every nut on the saddle a good tightening twist. After that, I felt better. By now, however, the sun was up. And every time I looked in the rearview mirror, all I could see was the big letters D-R-O-F. The backwards Ford name was tilting gently from side to side. It was unnerving. Why was that truck tailgating? Oh yeah, that's my other truck. But other than the roaring of the engine, the spooky mirror image, and the heat, it was a nice trip. I did pull into an open way station, unsure if it was necessary, but they waved me through. I drove into a truck stop for fuel, but couldn't use the big rig pumps and had to settle for gassing up with the cars and the RVs. Later that afternoon, the Corbin exit came into view and I pulled off the interstate and rolled into the truck stop. I found a parking spot way in the back, grabbed my bag, locked up the truck. At the desk inside, I handed the keys to the clerk and told her about the pickup the next day. Then I asked, could you tell me how to get to the Greyhound bus station? 
Since I had plenty of time, I planned to walk there. She looked at me and said, Oh, the bus station is at the next exit off the interstate. And it was not in walking distance. You could not get there anyway except to get back on the interstate. Apparently, Plan C was somewhat flawed. I think I heard a little chortle from above. Don't you worry, honey, she said, I'll get you a ride. And she picked up the mic and announced to one and all, I got a trucker here who needs a ride south. She called me a trucker. I felt like I'd just been promoted. Up walked an amiable guy who said he was headed south and we walked out to his tanker truck and boarded. We traded small talk about the relative merits of conventional cab versus cab over engine. And in no time flat, we got off at the Corbin exit number two. And he drove me right up to the bus station, which was actually a gas station, with a little window on the side of the building labeled Greyhound, which was closed. The guy at the gas station assured me that the window would be open later and that the bus was due about 7 p.m. Across the road was a small diner. I ambled over and ordered the fried chicken, which as I recall was mediocre at best, and greasy, for which I suffered on the ensuing ride back to Racine. Just a side note, Corbin is home of the first Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. That diner I ate on was not one of his. The bus came on time. Hot, sweaty, and now queasy, I found an aisle seat next to, what else, a very large woman. Neither of us had any desire to experience the other, which worked fine as long as we could maintain the appropriate tilt. But when sleep took over, well... Anyway, this bus was not on the express route. We visited towns with bus stations even smaller than the one we had just left. Every last tiny town between Corbin, Kentucky and Chicago, Illinois. I began to loathe the sound of air brakes. It meant another stop. Around the crack of dawn, we pulled into Chicago, where I had to change buses to get home. During the wait, I tried to wash up and change in the restroom so I'd look and smell a little better. It was a wasted effort. I boarded the bus and two hours later it pulled up in front of the Racine bus station. I called my wife and asked her to pick me up. She arrived shortly and I got into the car. She never said a word. I don't think she was impressed with our plan or with me. And you've been listening to Robert Froelich and he's a listener from Wisconsin. And if you have stories of your own, particularly road trip stories, we're looking for some of those, too, especially bad road trip stories. They are particularly endearing after you're finished with them and a year or two have passed. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com or any other stories you have, fun, sad, tragic, positive, anything you've got at all. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Your stories are some of our favorites. Robert Froelich's 321 You're It, his road trip story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, and that's a eulogy, a remembrance of a loved one. And by the way, in October, we also honor the lives lost through miscarriage, stillborn birth, sudden infant death syndrome, and other such tragedies. It's Infant Loss Month all October, every October in America. It was declared so in 1988 by President Ronald Reagan. And for all of you who've ever experienced that kind of tragedy, I had a dear friend lose not one, but two babies to a miscarriage and the grief I witnessed. Well, it was inconsolable, her grief. And so we bring you these stories because in the end, they touch so many of our lives. And today we bring you the story of Carrie Gosling, who bravely shares her life story her sad story with us now. My name is Carrie. I'm 36 years old and met my husband almost five years ago. We were married June 23, 2017 at the most beautiful wedding we could have imagined. Steve is three years older than I am. We knew we wanted to try to become pregnant right away and we were so excited to start a family. It worked. We considered ourselves incredibly lucky and couldn't believe that we became pregnant on the first month of trying. I had a positive pregnancy test on August 17th, 2017, and I texted my husband at work. Steve, 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 can I call you? He called me right back and I told him the news. We were shocked and excited. Neither of us has ever been married, nor do we have any other children. We heard too often from our families that we should hurry up and have kids. I'm not sure we could have went any faster. Funny how in the face of excitement, people can or will say and ask you anything. Essentially, our families were talking about and thinking about the most intimate act in our marriage, sex and making a baby. Yet here I sit, alone in our kitchen, writing our story to strangers and a website to express my feelings, thoughts, and sadness. Where are everyone's prying questions now? When I need them the most? I receive a lot of very distant and appropriate how are yous, but hardly any. What does your sadness feel like? Are you able to stand up in the shower? Or does the weight of your tears make you fall to your knees? When you sit for hours in your baby's room, do you cry the entire time? Do you find it difficult to get out of bed? You're still healing from giving birth to your baby. How is your pain? Death makes those closest to us so sad, so uncomfortable. They forget that only months earlier, they were intimately involved in thinking about our private life. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, fellow women, it's the same with colleagues, strangers, and acquaintances who touch our bellies when we're pregnant, who say to us, wow, you're huge, who offer their expertise in knowing if our baby is a boy or a girl, depending on if we've dropped or how fast the baby's heartbeat is. It's the same when they offer unsolicited advice on how to breastfeed, how to get the baby to sleep, to let or not to let your baby cry, all of these private topics way out in the open, open for discussion. And now, 
silent. Where'd you go? Where are you? You so comfortably told me how to never let my baby cry and how to breastfeed and you touched me. Now what? You're gone. Not that I want anyone near me anyway. Only my husband, who I'm not sure I could love more deeply than I do right now. Who I want to protect with every fiber of my being. Let anything happen to me. Let me have all the pain. Let me have all the illness. If it means he will always be okay. Anyway, pregnancy was a breeze for 30 weeks. I was never nauseous. I was never sick. I never had GERD or reflux. In the first trimester, I had depression and I struggled with feelings of inadequacy and fear. I was not myself, but by 14 weeks, I was feeling great. I swam one to three times a week and I went to the gym to walk or ride the bike. I was healthy. The baby was healthy, always normal on the growth curve, heart rate always in the 140s. Maternity 21 testing came back normal. We were breathing easy. We were preparing. We were becoming excited. The nursery came together fast with a neutral paint color, ease in putting together the crib and the dresser, and a best friend who gave us a chair and photos for the wall. We were ready. The baby shower my sister planned was absolutely perfect. Our baby received everything he or she needed and much, much more. How grateful we were to know that our baby would want for nothing. What I'm about to say will rile some of you up. It may elicit feelings of disbelief or anger, sadness, but it's my truth and I'm not sure how else to describe it. Throughout pregnancy, I never felt this connection other mothers talk about. I wasn't glowing, especially in the third trimester. I did not take baby bump photos and post them on social media. I did not document every second of pregnancy. I was excited to raise a child and to raise them to be good, to be kind. I looked forward to instilling qualities that could make them and us proud. But I did not have these natural feelings of hugging my belly or crying when he or she kicked. I write this to set the backdrop for what it felt like to give birth because it was a feeling that can't be defined or described. It's a love greater and deeper than any connection that could have been felt while pregnant. By 30 weeks, I was a different woman. Oh, the changes a woman goes through when pregnant. I never knew it. At 34 and a half weeks, I was at work and it was around 2 p.m. I had just walked to the bathroom and it exhausted me. I decided to check my blood pressure. I'm a nurse practitioner and understand the dangers of increased swelling, weight gain, and the risk factor of being 36 for my first pregnancy. I wish I could go back to this day. Was it something I did? Should I have never checked? Should I have taken it easier? What could I have done differently? 
My pressures were all above 160 over 90. One was 184 over 119. I called the OB. I was sent to the hospital. I was diagnosed with preeclampsia. The fear that was invoked when the intern told me that they might induce labor that night was so strong. Steve was perfect, telling me that we were ready, telling me we may be able to take our baby home, and telling me that this was okay. I heard him, I listened to him, I didn't believe any of it. They didn't induce me. They told me the goal was to get me to 37 weeks, just like all the literature recommends. They discharged me the next evening on labetalol and told me they'd see me in the office twice a week for two more weeks. They told me not to work. They told me I was okay. They heard the baby and told me that she or he was okay. I diligently monitored my blood pressures at home. They were all high, but I never had severe features like a headache, blurry vision, or liver pain. I felt the baby move like he or she always did. And when we come back, more of Carrie Gosling's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and Carrie Gosling's story. She'd been diagnosed with preeclampsia, a dangerous pregnancy complication characterized by high blood pressure. The doctors had sent her home on medication, and there we returned to Carrie and her husband Steve's story. I'll never, ever forgive myself for feeling miserable for complaining about my carpal tunnel, for crying in exhaustion when I couldn't sleep or breathe, for taking a bath every night, for not swimming more than I did, for not feeling that connection I should have felt when pregnant. You all will say, you didn't do anything wrong, but I'm not sure you're right. The baby was inside of me. I was responsible. How could I not feel guilt forever? Why didn't I advocate for more labetalol, even when I was at 400 milligrams twice a day? Why was I resistant to induction at 34 and a half weeks? Why didn't I ask the ancient doctor who I met for the first time when I was 36 weeks and one day pregnant to be more aggressive with the non-stress test that didn't show as much fetal movement as, as it should have? He followed up with an ultrasound, and the technician told me she saw fetal movement. But it wasn't a lot. I want more movement. That was just a flutter of an arm or a leg. Please. The baby is not moving as much as he or she always had. The heart rate was 130s, it was always 130s. But why didn't we wait longer to see diaphragm movement? Please, 
please wait longer. Please induce me now. Why didn't I ask those things? Why didn't I insist? My next appointment was three days later. It was to be my final appointment in the office before induction four days later. I was 36 weeks and four days pregnant at this appointment. I was alone at this appointment because I chose to go alone. I wanted to receive the date and the time of induction by myself. Instead, I received the worst news of my life, alone. They couldn't find a heartbeat on the non-stress test. They left me alone in the room to see if the ultrasound technician was available. I saw what the ultrasound tech saw or didn't see. No fluttering, tiny, sweet heart. No movement. My hands flew to my face as I lay flat and unable to sit up because of my large belly. I couldn't move. I needed help. Help me. Please help me. The technician's face was filled with horror and sorrow and sadness and sympathy. She stuttered in her movement, but not in her words. I'm going to get the doctor, Carrie. I was alone, again. My baby left me, too. They returned together. They hugged me. They put the probe on my stomach again so the doctor could verify death. Is it because I took so many baths? I sobbed. No, Carrie, no. This is nothing you did, the doctor said into my shoulder, her arms around me. It's so late. It's so late. Why now? Why now? I'm almost 37 weeks. It's so late, I sobbed. We know, we know. We're so sorry, they said. Four arms around me now. I called Steve. Steve? Steve? I whispered. Carrie, Carrie, what? What's the matter? Are you okay? What's the matter? There's no heartbeats to you. The baby has no heartbeat. I sobbed. I'm on my way. I'm coming. Move that truck. I have to get out of here. He screamed at his colleagues. I'm coming, Carrie. I'm on my way. I waited the hour it took for my husband to arrive. They made a nurse sit with me. You don't have to sit here, I said as I stared at the floor, my nose running. Yes, I do. I want to, she stared into my face. I was no longer alone. The doctor explained the process of labor, induction, and delivery of our baby to Steve and I. We went to labor and delivery, and we navigated decisions like when to call our families. Who do we call first? Do you want me to put the phone on speaker? Will you talk this time? What's labor going to feel like? I don't want to do it. Please don't make me do it. I put off induction for two hours while I fretted and we called our parents and our siblings. Everyone cried with us and told us how sorry they were. I can't remember any exact words. I struggle with memory loss in the midst of this grief. Steve has been my mind and my memory. After the placement of the epidural, the nurses helped lift my limp, heavy, swollen legs into bed and I fell asleep. I awoke at 11.20 a.m. to the greatest sense of pressure that I've ever felt. 
I told the nurse about it, and she asked the midwife to check my cervix. The midwife was a breath of fresh air. Her arms felt heavy and sincere and kind when she hugged me. Her eyes were sympathetic and warm. When I nervously asked, what's that mean? After she told me I was nine and a half centimeters dilated. It means you're going to have your baby very, very soon, she said. I began to cry and my breathing hastened. No, 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 no. Please, no. I can't, I can't, I can't. Don't make me do it. I didn't say these things. They just haunted me. They still haunt me. Imagining the pain of delivering our baby and never hearing his or her cry. Never taking a first breath. Never seeing his or her eyes open. It gives me an ache that is more powerful than the most painful contraction or pressure of delivery could ever produce. The nurse and the midwife explained to me how to push. And what's a contraction feel like? I nervously asked through pressured speech. You know, Carrie, you've had them all night. It's okay, dear. You're going to be okay. You can start whenever you want. We can wait for the doctor to get here, or you can start now. You tell us what you want to do. I think I want to start. Will you start with me? I think I feel the pressure. I don't know. I don't know. My eyes darting back and forth between the nurse and the midwife. It's okay. It's okay, Carrie. Let's give it a try, okay? Steve, lift her left leg for her. Now, Carrie, take a deep, deep breath and push. I screamed my way through that first push and quickly learned to hold my breath instead. At some point, about 10 minutes of pushing later, my doctor arrived from the office. I pushed for 40 minutes. At some point, I got on all fours and I pushed that way too. Steve reminds me that I also asked, is any of this even working? To which the nurse and the doctor said, oh yes, definitely Carrie, you're doing so well. I didn't believe them, but I no longer believed anyone anymore. I'll never forget when the doctor took off the end of the bed. My eyes widened. What are you doing? You're going to have a baby on this next push, Carrie. You're going to have your baby. I began to cry and my breathing hastened. No, 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 please, no. I can't. I can't. Don't make me do it. I didn't say these things. They just haunted me. They haunt me now. She was right. I had our baby on that next push. Steve peered around my knees. He came close to my face and he said quietly, it's a boy. And then he kissed me. I cried, I cried, I cried. I cry now. A baby boy, a boy. Let me see him, let me see him. Please give him to me. Give me my baby boy. Give him to me, please. I want it. Please. Steve cut his umbilical cord. The nurse put a blanket around him and she laid him on my chest. We named him Oliver Patrick. I cried out to the nurse and the doctor. They cried with us. Oliver never opened his eyes. He never breathed our air. He never let out the sweet infant cries that I knew he had inside of him. Oliver stayed with Steve and I for 10 hours. We held him all day and we cuddled him all night. 
kissed his cheeks thousands of times. We passed him back and forth. I had time alone with him when Steve left the room to get a drink, and Steve had time alone with him when I took a 20-minute nap. I remember my eyes being so heavy, but feeling so guilty for wanting sleep. He weighed five pounds, 10.7 ounces, and he was 21 inches long. He had my husband's family's cheeks, but I think he had my nose. His lips are his own. They are too perfect to be either Steve's or mine. They are his own, perfectly shaped lips. He was perfect. He remains perfect in my memory for the rest of my life. And what a job, Faith. Thanks so much for that. And what a story to tell. What courage in telling it. And that's Carrie Gosling, her story. Her husband Steve's story. Oliver Patrick's story. Infant Loss Month, all October bringing you these hard stories. That's what we do here, too. This is Our American Stories. 